Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is a live session from day two of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023. And it's called Namita Gokhale, A Life in Books. Namita Gokhale in conversation with Mandira Nair. excited to be part of this session and i think we've all had a really long day but um i think and at this point of time it's sunset i would like to start talking to namita really about the sunrise of when she get started writing as a writer she came on with paro and you've heard about it and paro came out in 1984 as as you've heard and it came out in a year where uh you know it was a blood soaked year it was a year of of assassination it was a year where i think sharabi was the was the film the vocabulary was i mean it was a different time and we're a different space and here came paro with this great energy this very contemporary book um incredibly sort of um you know it was racy it was far ahead of its time uh, it was bound to shock and it sort of did shock so i wanted to ask uh, namita about writing paro and its reception in 1984 a world away It sounds so long ago. Uh, I was all of 26 when I wrote that book, and 28 when it published. And um, it literally—it's difficult to imagine today the waves of shock that it caused. I was worried, first of all, about my mother-in-law. Really? So, well, yeah. I don't know yeah. how she'd react to it. Yeah. It was a liberal Marathi family; they liked books, so I dedicated the book to her. and i said to ai yeah. so that got her on my side yeah and then the book came out i got i got so much unexpected flack today's young writers cannot imagine what it's like to be confronted by people who think you've committed something like a crime yeah. or that you always were a criminal with a criminal mind what is a yeah. good middle class girl or somebody who we thought was a yeah. good middle class girl yeah. doing with this book and i never thought it was shocking in any way when i was writing it my father found a copy of the manuscript yeah. and he said child what are you writing i said i'm writing a novel yeah he said uh, child i think it would be best if you were discreet and you of course weren't and right? of course yeah. i couldn't tell him that if there was anything this book was not it was, it was not, not discreet, discreet yeah. but i as a young girl didn't realize the waves and waves and waves of shock it would cause and uh, almost 40 years later people read it any of you who want a good laugh go to full circle get a copy it's been in print for 40 years this one paro my first born and it keeps the it keeps people smiling still so that's wonderful so um you know i just want you to read a little bit so that you could kind of tell this thing but it was more than just i mean i think it was not only the fact that it was it it sort of was page 3 life now as you see it it was it was it was about scandals it was about affairs it was about you know about about lust and love right um and i think it was it was if you look at it right now i don't see i don't 
I don't know whether anybody would get the shock value, but, but then you're right, it would have been completely sort of out of the blue. So could you just sort of read us a bit? I so think I'll read out a little bit of the author's note instead. This was an edition that came out later, mm. and it says, I was 26 when I wrote Paro. I'd been thrown out of college. Mm. Super, the highly successful film magazine that I had founded was shut down. I was married and had two young daughters. My mother-in-law, a lady with literary taste, wasn't expecting me to write quite such a novel. So it was like that. And it begins with this glamorous woman called Paro, and uh, the girl called Priya, who works in the same, uh, in her husband's office. And I'll just read out the first paragraph or two. It says, I'm writing about them because I saw myself in her. Yeah. I was BR's, BR is the anti-hero. I was BR's secretary at that time. All of us in the office thought he was a real dreamboat. He looked straight into our eyes. He knew all our first names. He was a compulsive nymphomaniac. The dictionary says that a male nymphomaniac is properly described as a victim of satyriasis. I think he was a nymphomaniac and I think it was related to his compulsive need to sell himself. He was short, but he hadn't begun to go bald. And he was our boss. Ivy, Mary, and I loved him madly, and all of us hated Paro. She would breeze into the office every now and then and appraise us through narrowed green-gray green eyes. Her eyes mocked us, and they mocked our devotion to BR. So I think what shocked people was that I was making, um, I was slightly making fun of or laughing at a man who considered himself very successful and most of middle class India considered very successful, that type of person. So it, it just jarred. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. I've written 21 books since then. So I think yeah. we can move on. But I think, you know, I think that between the 21, and I wanted to see, you know, you start off with, and I think the blind matriarch you say is your last novel for the moment. And, you know, um, I, you know, I just wanted to cover the arc, really, in some ways. You know, The Blind Matriarch, written during COVID, at a point of time where loss is very much central to the book. You say, um, you know, if Paro is full of these um, liaisons, The Blind Matriarch, in some ways, is about a ma woman dying, really. It, they say, so can you really talk about, um, you know, the arc of that, of your journey from Paro, where, and after which you said that the shockwaves, it took you a very, very long time to get published again? Uh, Paro was a success because it was a type of novel. After that, Shobhade took the same style and began writing in exactly the same style uh, with her Starry Nights, but she wasn't quite that sarcastic yeah. or, you yeah. know, it yeah. was... And she made a very successful career out of it because she stuck to that formula for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, people, after they called me a pornographist and they called me this and that, I got very tired of it and I wrote a very serious book. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to publish that very serious book until much later. I mean, it was a sad, depressing book. It was called A Himalayan Love, Love Story. Story yeah. Yeah. So then I, it took me a long time to crawl back from... You know, if your first book is a huge success and suddenly you're internationally known, and then suddenly the world forgets you, and uh, you're no longer making uh, any point or any impression, it can be a bit depressing, but it's very good for the writing because you reassess, you think what you really want to do. Uh, 
it, it worked for me, that long period of, of failure. I just saw an old issue of uh, Savvy, yeah. something, and had me on the cover, and it's a Namita Gokhale on failure. Yeah. So even at the height of Paro success, that failure was always with me, and I deeply empathize with all those writers who are struggling with their books, because I know very, very well what that struggle is all about. And doesn't it, in some ways, I mean, as writers in any case, as you know, you always are vulnerable, right? And it is one of the toughest things to do and feel you're sort of, especially if you're a woman, you know, you're sort of struggling with failure much more. Um, Absolutely. I remember after a long time, Paro, nobody wanted to publish me much after that because they wanted a repeat of Paro. Then I wrote a yeah. Himalayan love story and I remember whether it was the Pioneer or the Tribune, I don't know which paper it was, but one mm -hmm. of them, for some reason, had an article in the first page which said a promiscuous book by a promiscuous woman. No. And that was a bit, and the guy, whoever had done the review, I know uh -huh. it was a guy because I knew who because did it. Because of course, yes. No, I know who did okay. it. Okay. But uh, he didn't sign his name off. And it was a bit much promiscuous woman. I mean, yeah. I took it, I was a bit upset, but not very upset. But now at 66, at 26, I was a little bit vulnerable. At 66, I'm invulnerable. Yeah. And I'm invulnerable not because I was such a great experience of my uh, uh, sort of thing about myself. I'm invulnerable because I don't care. Yeah. I've written a book. I care about whether I'm happy with what I've written or not. If I'm happy with what I've written, lovely. Yeah. Then nobody can hurt me. If two or three people have read it and appreciated it, that's quite enough for me. Yeah. If it's a success, it's a bonus. Yeah. But it doesn't. But I know that there are writers, and because they've invested so much in their books, they're vulnerable, that even if there's a full review which is beautiful, those few lines of Always criticism, they rankle. Yeah. But uh, if you're a writer, that you just got to be used to it. Yeah, you have to develop a thick skin. Absolutely. So, you know, talking really about uh, Blind Matriarch, and I remember when we were talking about it, you said, I wrote this book and I thought it was going to be so boring. I didn't think of, I didn't know why anybody would want to read about this old woman dying. But can you talk about what you, about, uh, so, you know, I wrote a novel which uh, I think all my books slowly as I grow older, the subject goes to aging somewhere in it. I wrote a novel called The Jaipur Journals, which had a wicked old woman as at the heart of it, a thwarted writer called Rudrani Rana. Yeah. And uh, that was my beginning of encounter of older women and yeah. which translated my own experience. And then I was sitting here in the festival and I wanted to run away because I wanted to write a novel called The Blind Matriarch. That's all I knew. Yeah. That there was a novel about a called The Blind Matriarch which was about an old woman who lived on the top floor of a house. Hmm. That's all I knew. And I remember uh, 1919, the festival got over. Uh, no, it was 1920 perhaps. Hmm. Uh, the festival got over and I had to go to Nepal for something. I just ran there, didn't even pack, unpack, just took whatever I could find, attended that day conference and checked into the room, which I found a quiet room in the corner of the hotel looking out into a quiet garden and I began writing The Blind Matriarch. Yeah. So I started writing it before COVID. Much before. Uh, I still remember 9th of February, 2020. 
20 the COVID started. I mean, right? do, you have, do you have vivid memories of, I mean, do you remember vividly dates that you start this all your novels? This one I remember, not otherwise. This okay. one I remember. And then, because I was in Kathmandu at that time, the COVID had just begun. Like, I was in the flight back, and there were Chinese women in it, and I was wondering. Hotel was full of Chinese with people. Yeah. And I would wonder because. Yes, of course. Know, yes, at that point. But it wasn't still the same panic. And then after that, I uh, went to. Uh, sorry, I got distracted by people walking through. But uh, I uh, began writing this book, and it just got on a life of its own. And I finished it within, I think, about six months. Mm. I'd write all the time. I've never had that luxury of so much time to write as mm. I had during COVID. And I wrote it in real time. Yeah. And I can see uh, my editor sitting yeah, there, man. uh, Manasi Subramaniam. She was also locked up in COVID. Yes, I know. Uh, really close to your house, almost yes. like right, right there. So what would happen was every time I wrote two, three chapters, I would send it to her. Huh. And because she had the time, she would read it and edit it. Yeah. And we got through it. So before we knew it, the book was completed. And I don't think it needed too many edits. And it was in real time. Yeah. Uh, whatever happened in the last week went into my novel as happening to the characters. They had their own lives as yes. well. And then when I said, when are you going to publish it? She said, we are now going to publish it at least for one and a half years because the publishing industry had also yeah. shut down. So when it opened, I said, who will read this novel? It sounded so boring when I came out with it again. But what to do? It came yeah. out, it did well, and it's now one of my favorite books. It really is. It, it's one of those books that I think that really stays with you. It's a book where the character sort of is, um, I don't know, personally, you sort of, it's, it's a loss of your, this thing, it's, it's more than just her passing. It's, you know, we've talked about this. It's a, it's a passing of an era. It's passing of, of a generation, really. And you know, this heart of your books really are these people like her, my, all the of women, Matangmai, for example, who is this very resilient woman who keeps together families. Um, and you, the theme of your books in, is women who are resilient, Indian women who sort of are ordinary, uh, who live ordinary lives, but yet have extraordinary uh, reserves of strength. And can you really talk about that, this, this canvas of women that you really have, of the ones who keep family, the ones who sort of listen, and where you draw your inspiration from? I think Indian women are socially very, very vulnerable. But individually, and I can't say for the whole world because I haven't seen women everywhere, but Indian women are the strongest I know of so many I've encountered. And Pahari women, I'm a Kumauni, and Pahari women are women from all our mountains, whether it is Bhutan yeah. or whether it is Darjeeling. They have an extra resilience. That's because they've grown up in a very difficult environment. environment. Yes. The weather is bad, the conditions are bad. I mean, there are wild animals around, there are, yeah. there's no water, and they, they are tough. Mm. And I respect toughness. Whereas uh, in more privileged bits of societies, Exactly, yeah. So I'm not too impressed by beauty and romance and glamour and luxury. I, I like tough women and I end up writing about them quite a lot. And I like tough women who love life. Yeah. That's what matters to me. And who've also seen life. And who 
who've seen life and who enjoy it. I yeah. don't want sad women who are strong. True. I want women who, who take on their lives and enjoy every bit of it. And yeah. uh, when people clapped in this line, clearly uh, it, it, it hit people's hearts because yeah. all of us know those women yeah. who have that strength. Yes. And throughout this literature festival, I'm always uh, very cognizant of having at least one woman on every panel. I resist manners because women have, you know, you have four men talking. I'm sorry to say yeah. they'll talk, sorry to the gentlemen in the audience, but they will try very hard to sound very intelligent. Yes. And they'll talk through their hats. <laughs> Whereas the one woman in the audience, She'll know. She will come down to the brass tacks. Yeah. Uh, this is not, I'm not being gender uh, prejudiced. I respect men. I'm not, uh, I'm not a feminist in that sense of the word. Yeah. I, I, but there's a special way women think and that's because they've grown up in the material world. They have to handle the small problems all the time. True. When you've grown up handling the small problems, till you're old, you're handling the small problems. You're rooted in yeah. a different way than if you can just tell your missus. Yeah. Or you can tell your PA or you can yeah. tell somebody. So I think that grounding that women have anywhere in the world is valuable. And when men have it, it's valuable for them also. This is not a gender thing. No. It's but, an experience thing. And, you know, in some ways, you know, you talk about this grounding and you talk about, um, you know, women who've, um, you know, lived life in the sense that they, they deal with other aspects of it. But there is a certain aspect of, um, of, of, of all the women that you write about that manage to take life and their experience. You know, it's about, it's about um, you know, making mountains out of, not making mountains out of molehills. And you say that, you say that it is, it is an aspect of that. And I wanted to ask you about, in some ways it also reflects, and Madam Mai, you know, it also reflects inner strength of your own life. You've had, you've, you've dealt with the adversities that have been handed over to you with great, um, with great strength. And um, can you talk, this thing, can you talk? about being thrown out of college. That's an interesting For thing. those of the, in the audience who haven't been through my bio notes or don't know all my sad story of my life, I've actually, it's as though life has given me one kick after another and every time I've just got up and dusted the, the whatever, the dirt, muck and hurt and pain off. But um, I was uh, married when I was young, very young. I got married when I was 18. 18 yeah. And uh, very soon afterwards, I had some difficulties in my marriage, though I was very, very devoted to my husband. But we had a lot of problems. And then after that, I got cancer when I was very yes. young. And those were days when cancer was still uh, much more dreaded than it is now. And people would come to me and say, Are, cancer ho gaya? Are, humare dadaji ko cancer hua tha, do din mein bas khatam. So I just forbade people. I said, nobody's going to come here and talk to me about cancer. I don't want to talk about it. One doctor also told me, your time is very short and all. I said, mare mere dushman. <laughs> and I went to a nicer, more pleasant doctor who was kinder to me and God blessed me. I, I, I'm still around, uh, I don't know how many years later. And, uh, but I lost my husband when I was very young after that. Then I got two or three serious 
illnesses after that. Then I faced other challenges in my family. So who hasn't? All of you, I'm sure, have faced all these challenges. But for me, what was saying was that they all got crunched up together. Together, yes. That's all. By the but time you were 42, you dealt with all this. And afterwards also, and then yeah. had good patches. So I, I don't think I've been any more fortunate, unfortunate. All of us go through patches of very good, very bad, very good, very bad. And the thing is to remember and respect the bad times through the good times. And the good people who stand yeah. by you in the good, in the, the good people who stand by you in the in bad, bad times, times are the people you should hang on to. And the bad people who come to you in the good times, well, they also have a right to do whatever they are like. You know, I mean, life goes on. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, so you talk about this thing and you, you know, one of the aspects of the book and all your this thing is about faith and fate. And essentially, you talk about that a lot. You know, there is a certain level of faith, fate. And can you talk about faith in your own faith life? Faith and fate. Yes. Okay, see, I'm a stoic and I believe, uh, I'm a Pahari, I'm a Kumauni. And the other day, some, I read this line on somebody's Facebook thing and I made it my motto. And I won't, I don't know her, I've only read it. So it's not my original line, but I loved it. And now it's my line. And she said, main pahadi nahi, main pahad hoon. Huh. Oh, that's and lovely. I love that. Yeah. And really, main yeah. pahadi nahi, main pahad hoon. And hum, every, around the world when I go to sessions, at the end of it, there'll be one or two tough, bright, tall, yeah. they, I mean, tough looking women yeah. with beautiful smiles and they'll come and say, main bhi pahadi hoon. Yeah. And uh, whether it is Gadwal, Uttarakhand, anyway, they come up. I've, I've had this in Rome, I've had this in Poland, I've had this somewhere. And I, they haven't come to me as a writer. They've come to me because I'm a Pahari. Pahari so yeah. that sense of kinship. You, I mean, if I tell you how many Pahari's there are in Jaipur, it's astounding. Yeah. Uh, and it's lovely. So that sense of place is very important to me. And the mountains give faith. Yeah. Because the mountains, you know, they're, they're, it's something about the mountains. You go there. Asta hoti hai, what is called. True, true. And, and you do talk about Asta and you do talk about faith. You also talk about, and um, you know, I want to talk, okay, we've talked about mountains, so let's start about this. You know, in, when, in the Himalayan arc, in your introduction, you talk about, you quote somebody and you say that uh, you, for anybody who's lived in the mountain, you inherit the mountains. Absolutely. And right? you know, people who live by the sea, there's a different wisdom about the sea. It leaves the tides, it comes back. That the tidal waves, the, the pattern of the sea enters your body, yeah, in fact. Yeah. And you know the wisdom of the sea is that it will retreat, it will return, it will retreat, it will return. Yeah. The wisdom of the mountains is different. Yeah. The wisdom of the mountains is it'll stand strong unless kabhi catastrophe ho jaye, joshi mat ho jaye. But yeah. It is, and there is something, anybody who goes and stays in the mountains from a while, they don't have to be from there. But that rock strength, yeah. I found, comes to them. So can you talk about releasing, when you read any of your books, Himalayan Love Story, for example, you do feel a sense of the mountains. I don't think anybody has written as, well, I think you write about the mountains with I, this great deal of love. It's almost tender. It's this love affair. It's this... 
this longing it's 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 beautiful I, it it exists on your pages it's just gorgeous can you talk about growing up there I'm suffering from severe imposter syndrome because everybody says mountains, mountains. Four years, I've just not been able to go to the mountains. I go for one day, something happens, I have to rush back. But this coming year, I'm going to start on a new project which I've been waiting to do for a long time. Which is? Which will get me through the mountains again for the next one or two years. You know, I did the Bhutan Literature Festival for 10 years. And uh, Bhutan is a place where the incredible strength of the men and the women and mm. the mountains is there. Nagaland, every rock there has a yeah. personality and an identity. Something, and you know, I, I love other mountains. I love Boulder. I love the Rockies. Yeah. I, I love these places. But there is a spirituality in the Himalayas, mm. which is very difficult to explain. Yes. And I have a novel, uh, I mean, I have this anthology, which will be launched tomorrow. Yeah. It's called Mystics and Skeptics, uh, Himalayan Masters. And um, there are so many other people who have experienced the power of the Himalayan landscape. Maybe it's these centuries of prayer that have gone in there. Mm. These devis, devtas, it's something about the mountains. There is something, I don't know what it is, but I love it. it. But, you know, you talk about this faith and, you know, you talk about this aspect, this indescribable quality, this sort of, in some ways, you know, this this about how f- how faith sort of hangs there in a way in the sense that you sort of feel the presence in some way my words not yours but you know in mystics and skeptics you talk about and i wanted to ask you you say you are a you have to have a certain level of skepticism um even in even in faith and can you talk a little bit about that i can't talk about it it's just that i'm not one for too many flowery words i'm not one for i just I'm naturally suspicious of anything that's over-beautiful yeah. or overdone or over this thing. I, I like a little bit more rough love, tough love. I mean, I, I, I'm very suspicious of anything that looks too good. Hmm. I don't know why, but not yeah. my style. Okay. So, uh, but, okay. So, and we also talked about, um, you know, you, you've talked with writers and you said, for example, Matang Mai, she came to you, right? You imagined her. She was this, this, this word, this word, this came to you. Do, um, do characters take on their own lives on the pages? Do you control them? Do they control you? Uh, my, you know, the, the novel, my strangest novel ever was called The Book of Shadows. I wrote it many years ago and it's the one most people have forgotten about because it's a very difficult book. But it's told by a ghost. And that ghost almost possessed me. And it possessed my computer. And really? once I remember the whole manuscript got wiped out and I couldn't track it. And mm. then I called a, a, a tech yeah, child tech, in. Yeah. It was many years ago when tech was not so easy. And the young man came in wearing a t-shirt which said 666, which is the beast. Mm, and, this, the, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. came in. And he looked at my computer, he played with it, and he said, ma'am, if you don't mind, I'm going away. I've had a nervous breakdown, and if I look at your computer, I'll have a second nervous breakdown. Because on its own, there was one line in the book which said, the ghost says in the book, when the ghost enters the story, he says, I lurk in corners, I hide in shadows. Just those two lines from my whole manuscript kept coming on on the screen. 
and he couldn't. He said Bill Gates can't understand this. Yeah. Steve Jobs can't understand oh, wow. this. Why are just these two lines coming yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. It was weird. Yeah. Then I have a friend who's a witch. Oh yes, Ipshita. of course, Ipshita. Ipshita. Yes. Yeah. So I told Ipshita, this is what is happening. Yeah. She said, keep a basil plant and some yellow roses near your thing. I did it because it scared the hell out of me. And did it help the basil plant? Who remembers? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm not such a that kind of person. But that was a, because it was in the voice of a ghost. Yes. So that's. I mean, strange world is full of strange stories. But do writers have this uncanny ability? Like you know, Amitabh Ghosh talks about this. You know, he said in the flood of fire. Uh, he says he started writing and he did. He wrote and then those things happened. That happens to me all the time. I write something, and uh, similar. I won't even bore the audience with what particular things have happened. But there were some very tragic things in the Book of Shadows. I wrote. A chapter about somebody being burnt alive uh -huh. by accident. Once I finished it, somebody very close to me actually got burnt. And writers are so cruel. Any of you who are close to writers, they are horrible people. I, this beloved person who I cared deeply for, I was also looking at the body to see the, to what the burns look like. In my novel, how I'd written them. Yeah. And I got afraid after a while because I would write things and they would happen. Then I was told by somebody that writers inhabit a space of prescience. Yeah. That means they don't live just here. A bit lives in the past, a lives, not lives, but the mental radar is little in the past, little in the mm. future, little in fantasy, little bit in jhootjhaat also, I guess. But that's why, that's why writers often say that they pick up the stories. They feel the stories are being enacted in front of yeah. them. Yeah. There is some other dimension from where these stories come to some writers. Yeah. And if you're fortunate, you get them. Which, and you certainly are that. You, you see, yours seem to be, uh, you know, you do have that sort of certain, I don't know, there's a certain... At the moment, I don't know if I'll ever write a book again. I'm all dried out. I wrote so much in the last three, four years. Listen, I, I don't think that's possible. I, I don't think you can never write a book it, again. Then Manasi, Manasi is saying, no, no, this can never happen, and I know, agree. But it happened to me earlier. I, uh, I did the Mahabharat for young readers, yeah. and rashly, David Davidar said, will you give it to me in yeah. six months? I said, ha, ha. Uh. Took me about a year. But to compress the Mahabharat, I had to read, for young readers, I had to read it again and again, different versions. Yeah. And the Mahabharata is such an astounding work. Yeah. And they really say whatever is there in the world is there in yeah, it. In and after working on the Mahabharata for one year, I said, I can never write again because all the stories have already been told. Mm. There mm. are no stories left. Every story in the world is there in the Mahabharata. Yeah. And for two years, I didn't write at all. But, but you know, you've said that you won't write, you said you won't do a novel right now, but that doesn't mean you're going to not stop writing. Can you stop writing? Do you think, I mean, do you think it's like a tap, you just switch Maybe off? Maybe there's a time when all the stories are told within you. And many writers, as they grow older, they go on writing, you've told the stories. You know, it, it might be better just to leave, 20, I've written 21 books. Yes. I have two more that I'm committed to writing. Uh -huh. I, it would be lovely to read 
wonderful books and to have the quality of my books deteriorate as my mind deteriorates, as I get a bit slower but or a bit lazier. you get. So I'm very happy. I, I don't, it's not the main thing in my life anymore to write. But, you know, if you look at it, if you look at Monet, for example, he did, if you, you, look, you look at the water lilies and you find that he's done the water lilies over and over again, you know. I went and saw, I'm in Philadelphia and I was awestruck and I said, this is it. And then I went, I went to, uh, to Paris and I found the same thing and he does, he reinvents the same thing. I mean, it's wonderful. I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything, but, you know, the world has lots of water lilies. Do you think in some ways writers owe themselves to continue to do this? And for someone who has sort of, the idea of, it's not, it's also commitment to memory about keeping alive. Uh, Each of my books has been so different from the others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's say I've had a good journey. I'm not tempted to write much more. I don't care if somebody likes my books, doesn't like my books, anything. I'm very tempted to help other people write their books. The stories must be told. So I, I'm there for other writers. I'm there for a community of writers. I'm there to help the Lit Fest mm. showcase more and more writers. But with my own stories, it sounds cruel and horrible. I'm bored. That's it. I don't think, but I mean, well, I'm hoping that that's not going to happen, and I'm hoping at some point of time this immense reserve of strength is finally going to come, and you're going to find some other things may to say. May or may not. Who can tell? You know, we've well, got 13 minutes left. It's about it's about faith and fate. I so, don't know. Kushwan Singh, who's a dear friend of mine, and he once blurbed my books, and he said Namita Gokhale writes about love, lust, okay. and death. Yes. But I don't know what I write about, and. As I said, Hogia, words, 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 words. Okay, so let me let me ask you. You know, you talk about wisdom, and you know, you said that um, in in a lot of the books that you you know most of your books there is this aspect of ordinary wisdom. You know, stuff stuff that we've passed down. You know, stuff that we already hear. Our you know resilience in some ways that is that your grandmothers talked about or this thing like that, which sort of tells you to you know get on with life, as you said, dust off. And I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you to narrate the story of Sister Aquinas. Oh, no. No? I just, you know what she's asking about? It's a long story and I won't get into it, but I got thrown out of college no. by a nun. I want you to talk about, after that, I want you to talk about the fact that you go back and attend her, her, um, her leaving. Okay, so yeah. I, I'm so, this story, those are, okay, which of you in the audience want to go on to questions? And then you got to get home. And which of you want to hear a story about Sister Aquinas? Okay. Sister Aquinas, Namita Gokhale is 17 years old and she thinks she knows everything about the world. And there's a nun there in St. Jesus Mary College and she likes me very much in a way that might be suspicious today. Yes, yes. And she calls me to her room. She says, why don't you drink some Santorini? And we chat, and she's very nice. Then I meet somebody who I fall in love with, and she says, Namita, why aren't you? And I'm the model girl in the college, in the sense, first runner-up Miss JMC, yeah. or vice president of the college something. And I mean, that Essentially the bright future uh, type. Teacher's yeah. pet. Yeah. And uh, she says, why have you stopped coming to college? No, I'm not very good at telling lies. Or... So I said, because I've fallen in love. She said, oh, bring the young man to see me. I said, Achha. Yeah. So young man and I went to see her in the parlor where the nuns lived. Yes. And the class three employees were having a strike. Okay. When we went in, the conversation became about the class three employees. 
and she and then because yeah. my husband yeah. asked yeah. her yeah. 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 and she took an instant hatred to him yeah. and they began saying don't get married he's after your money yeah. said, but i don't yeah. have any money yeah. no your grandmother's jewelry my god i said and this is true i said my grandmother has gambled her jewelry yeah. away because my grandmother loved to play cards mm -hmm. and every now and then ek churi kho jati thi so aisi family thi so ji so then after that they when i got married finally to a very nice man from a very respectable family and who i love my my husband died young but my mm -hmm. marital family is my family still i'm mm -hmm. very close to them all closer than yeah. perhaps my own family they read a mass for me in church you said so yeah. and they said she is succumbing to lust ab pata nahi kya to meri life mein every year or two something weird happens and it doesn't upset me because i know my life has a tendency to do this weird yeah. thing so i just carry on normally and wait for it to subside i don't react to it too much hmm. but somehow i get people i don't know what it is i've had funny experiences and i am trying to sit down and write my memoirs see there because that's one of the two books i'm hoping okay. to work on they you know this but it's because my life has been very odd No, so they say truth is stranger than fiction always but okay so let me you know she's not telling you the other bit of the story so essentially after this she files a court case and she tries to get to do these uh, oh yeah we answer. went to court yes my sister in law was a lawyer and my Arun father in law was a law minister arun jetli was a lawyer we went to yeah. court 100 girls she held back 100 girls from college i don't have a college degree i'm not a graduate and after that she stopped being a nun but before that she went to rome and she said i want to call you over because i want to tell the whole college you were my favorite student and that's why i stopped you from giving the exam because the nun stopped me from giving my exam because i was doing i lost the story yeah. <clears throat> there was a, i wanted to study modern indian literature there was a course on it instead of a uh, course on uh, chaucer and i said why should i study chaucer yeah. so i studied mohan rakesh and yeah contemporary literature she held me back and then she said because i loved her i held her back yeah so then i gave her a book and i wrote in that to sister akanas who taught me the real sense of the world because i realized world is crazy then only i realized and i'm not a graduate it doesn't matter and anybody who's listening I'm still waiting for that honorary degree. Perfect, and then hopefully it'll come. It'll come. But so, I'm both hint Martiyo University. Yeah, but don't on. worry, there will okay. be. JMC is listening. Yeah. Okay. So, Doctor Namita Gokhale, I go. Yes, Doctor Namita Gokhale. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.